Well, good morning, Christ City. Please stand with me as we read God's word this morning. John 1, 14 to 18 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever known or rather seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, that's Jesus, has made him known. Remaining standing with me, let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we need you this morning. We need you by your spirit uh, to come and by your spirit make real the person of Jesus to us. Make real to us his incarnation and why that matters for us. Uh, We just read that Jesus himself was full of grace and truth and we pray, Father, that we would be more like your son as we leave today full of grace and truth. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, when you're the parent of uh, small children, uh, you end up listening to the same things over and over again when you're driving uh, your, your vehicle. Now, as a parent, let me instruct you, you, sh- you should choose wisely because whatever you choose, that's the next five years of your life, you're going to be listening to that. Thankfully, in our vehicle, uh, the soundtrack on repeat, what I'm listening to all the time, uh, is the Jesus Storybook Bible uh, by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And as I thought about our topic this morning, uh, the incarnation of the Son of God, I couldn't help but think of the beautiful refrain in that book that I've heard now a million times. Sally Lloyd-Jones, she writes this, The God who flung planets into space and kept them whirling around and around, the God who made the universe with just a word, the one who could do anything at all, was making himself small and coming down as a baby. There is no doubt something new, something different happening in our series today. See, in talking with some of you over these past weeks, I know that for a lot of you, our series, what we've talked about, what we've discussed, has felt lofty and and theological, theoretical even. Uh, Especially when we've just left a series that is so earthly and so practical in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you maybe have something like spiritual whiplash. One moment sitting alongside Jesus on a Galilean mountainside talking about how you should live your life and then suddenly you're you're whisked into heaven considering the eternally pre-existent Son who has always been loved by the eternal Father, by the eternal Spirit. it, It was spiritual whiplash perhaps. And in part, I think this whiplash was necessary. For the Jesus who walked the dusty roads of Jerusalem is first the Son who made all of humanity from dust. Without the eternally pre-existent Son, without the, the, the Son who is the eternal creator and Lord of all, 
who is the promised and prophesied hope of Israel and all the nations. Without all these things, without that backdrop, we miss this week. We don't understand, indeed we cannot understand the glory and the beauty and the mystery of the Incarnation, which we will discuss today. But without the Incarnation, without today, and without the rest of our series, all those glorious and heavenly truths about the Son, who He is, what He's done, all of those things would remain there, would stay in heaven with Him. Instead, this morning, they are before us. We can feel and touch them. And so our outline today is like this. It's very simple. Jesus is the God-man. That's one. Two, sent to undo what was done by man. And then thirdly and finally, and that changes everything. Jesus is and was the God-man, sent to undo what was done by man, and that changes everything. And so first, Jesus is, he is, he is the God-man. Uh, before we look at what Jesus does and what this means for us, it is so important we consider just who Jesus is. Right now, just who he is. Look, look back at John 1, verse 14 with me. We read there, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is Jesus? John says he is the word become flesh. Well, what does that actually mean? Let me begin by saying, and this is sometimes helpful when we're thinking of a definition or an answer, by establishing what it does not mean. Let's establish some boundaries as to what we do not mean when we say that Jesus is the word become flesh. First, the word become flesh does not mean that Jesus is God in a, a meat suit, if you will. That Jesus is some divine being in some sort of fleshly outer layer. You know, there's a, a show that's been quite popular called The Good Place. If you've seen it, you know in the show, it has angels and, and demons sort of zipping up these meat suits as we would zip up a, a sweater. That's not what John is, is talking about here, that Jesus is just wearing the external uh, appearance of, of man. Outwardly only. Jesus is not simply in the appearance of man. He is, and we'll see this in our answer later, fully and completely and totally man. Nor is the word become flesh meant to lead us to believe that Jesus is like Superman. Half man, half amazing. Or, or half man, half God. No, again, we'll see this. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Finally, we, we could also say this, nor was Jesus just a man with a limited but growing amount of God in him as he progressed. See, Philippians 2, 6-7 is an important passage to consider as we ask just who is Jesus. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi. He says this in reference to Jesus, who... Though Jesus, though, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. We'll look back at that emptying. What does that mean? But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, when we read that Jesus emptied himself, 
Paul's not saying that Jesus in any way stopped being God or emptied himself of his divinity. Rather, Paul clarifies that Jesus' emptying happened. Look at, look at the passage. It happened. How? Well, Paul tells us. This emptying happened by the taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We could say that it is subtraction or emptying by addition. It's subtraction by addition. The eternal Son becomes fully human. And not only does the eternal Son become fully human, He becomes fully human, Paul says in Philippians 2, to serve. To serve. So then, how should we positively understand the word become flesh? Let me say something simple. I've said it sort of in passing a few times now. But let me say something simple, yet gloriously mysterious. Ready? In Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we find complete and total divinity and, at the exact same time, complete and total humanity. Jesus is all God. That's why in Acts 20, 28, uh, Luke can write that God died on the cross. God shed his blood for our sins. God did that. Jesus is God. Jesus is fully and totally man. That's why the author of Hebrews uh, can say in Hebrews 2 that Jesus has been made like man in every respect. And in Hebrews 4, Jesus, like man, has been tempted in every way just like you and I are tempted. He is fully God and in every way man. In every way. This mystery of, of Jesus, who he is as a person, is what theologians have called uh, the hypostatic union. I'll put that on the screen for you. That's our, our big word for this morning. It's the hypostatic union. And, and before you turn off uh, the, the YouTube, let me explain. The, the term just describes essentially what, what we've already said. That in the person of Jesus, that word hypostatic just refers to a, a person, that in the person of Jesus, you have two completely different natures. One human, the other divine, somehow united. Somehow in him. The creeds you have in your series handbook. I'll open that if you have that printed out. The Nicene and the Chalcedonian. These creeds were created in their respective time periods largely to articulate for us what I've just said. See, who Jesus is, as we've been seeing all along, is at the center of our faith. And if our faith is to crumble, it is because someone attacks the person and work of Jesus, just who he is. And so these creeds, Nicene and Chalcedonian, sought to clarify very, very simply for us, but in big theological language, the person of Jesus. They've helped the church throughout the years immensely. So, so we find this truth in these creeds, but first in Scripture, and, and yet... And yet, we, we have to confess that ultimately, the person of Jesus is, is mysterious. It's mysterious. If you've been joining us so far in our Zoom gathering this morning, and let me encourage you, if you're watching on YouTube, join us every Sunday at 10 a.m. on our Zoom gathering. A link is on our webpage under our media tab. If you've been joining us in, in our Zoom gathering so far, you know we've already read this passage this morning from 1 Timothy 3.16, where Paul writes there, 
Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What is this mystery? He was manifested in the flesh. That's mysterious. We can give language to it. Indeed, the Bible gives us language to put to this. But ultimately, that this union is mysterious. That, that, that the infinite was contained in, in, in the finite. It's mysterious. Jesus in his nature is fully God and fully man. But, but now we must ask, seeing who he is, what, what did he come to do? What, what did he come to do? Second point. Jesus is the God-man sent to undo what was done by man. Again, we go back to John 1, verse 14. Look with me. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is the glory that John is talking about? In John's gospel, we find this very peculiar thing, that Jesus identifies his glory and his glorification with the work that he will do on the cross, in his crucifixion, in our place for our sins. In John's gospel, the glory is connected with the cross, the, the cross that Jesus will, will go to. And so the word became flesh, look at John 1.14, and dwelt among us, and through the glorious act of his crucifixion, uh, where John Chrysostom describes, death was abolished, the, the curse was loosed, devils were shamed and led in triumph and made a show of, and the handwriting of our sins was nailed to the cross. In this moment here, in Jesus' moment of glory, we see why he has come. Now we'll see in the coming weeks, Jesus did not only come to die, but what drove Jesus to come was to rescue us from our sin through his life, death, and resurrection. And resurrection. He has come to undo what we have done. Let me explain. Jesus has come to undo as a man what you and I as humanity have done. See, the Bible tells us that our problem as a human race extends deep into our nature. It isn't just what we, we do or what we think. It actually extends our problem. Our sin problem extends all the way to our nature. You and I are descendants, the Bible tells us, of the person of Adam. And, and, and being a descendant of Adam means that we inherit Adam's nature, his, his sin, his rebellion, his disobedience. This is in our DNA. Uh, we are born in this world not with a taste for good and glorious things, but with a taste, as one author says, for sewage. And Paul writes this in Romans 5, 18. Therefore, as one trespass, that's the sin of Adam, led to condemnation for all men. See, here's the offense of the Incarnation. We're going to look at the good news of the Incarnation in just a moment, I promise. But herein lies the offense of the Incarnation. The Incarnation of Jesus is a complete and total indictment on the efforts of humanity. See, the Incarnation of Jesus says to every self-improvement book you have in your home, that maybe this is helpful, but ultimately it misses the underlying issue. And the incarnation of Jesus says to every form of self-righteousness that we, that we trumpet on the internet, you know what? You set the bar too low. 
Your standard is not high enough. See, while the incarnation undoubtedly offends our pride, indeed, if the incarnation is understood properly, it has to offend our pride. If it offends our pride, it has to offend our pride. If it tells us what we cannot do, in the very same moment, at the exact same time, it also whispers to us, though, what God has done for us. If we keep on reading in Romans, Paul continues, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, this is the death of Jesus on the cross, why he came, leads to justification declared not guilty for our sin, and life, life now, life forever, for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, it's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. We're going to unpack more of what Paul's saying here in the coming weeks as we look at Jesus' crucifixion. But for now, in this moment, you can see why Bernard of Clairvaux, an ancient follower of Jesus, you can see why Bernard of Clairvaux called the incarnation the kiss of God. In the incarnation, we have God's fleshly, affectionate, loving embrace, overflowing embrace of his beloved, his church. Another pastor, Tim Keller, uh, has, has uh, beautifully summarized the good news of Christianity like this. We could say this is the good news of the incarnation. Christianity tells us that you are worse than you think you are, but also far more loved than you feel you are. So Jesus is the God-man, sent to undo what was done by man. And third point, this is it. And that changes everything. It changes everything. What exactly do I mean when I say everything? For starters, the incarnation introduces an entirely new category to the world called grace. Called grace. Of course, God has always, always, from the very first pages of the Bible, God has always engaged with his creation on the basis of grace. He's always engaged with his people on the basis of grace grace. But, but when the Son takes on flesh, bears the name Emmanuel, God with us, we behold grace like the world has never seen and will never see again. God condescending to us, not because we're worthy of it, or, or, or beautiful, or, or good enough, but because he is in himself a fountain of love overflowing with grace, giving to us what we do not and did not deserve. One of the things that breaks my heart these days, and it should break your heart too, is that we live in a world totally devoid of grace. If you don't believe me, go online for 20 seconds. We live in a world totally devoid 
of grace. And what's worse, we as Christians participate as those who do not bring grace to this world. Now in Acts we read that our gospel, our good news, is the good news of grace. Our God is a God, we learn here, of grace. We live in a world instead where we, we cancel people. We just cancel them. They're, they're just done. They're, they're dead to us. We, we cancel businesses. We, we cancel entire sections of history. We, we, we have a world where a mob sets up this arbitrary morality. Where they get it from, I do not know. And in fact, it changes every single day. And then this mob ruthlessly eliminates any who will not conform to it. Can I tell you something? That's demonic. It's demonic. Imagine with me. Imagine if the Father had acted this way towards us. Now, I'm not saying we let sin slide. I'm not saying we don't call evil, evil. But I'm frankly embarrassed to call myself a Christian online when I see what many of my brothers and sisters in Christ are doing there. We live in a world totally devoid of grace. The Father, the Father graciously sends His Son in flesh that He might also graciously give us all things by His Spirit, including the ability to show grace to others. John 1.16, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The Incarnation changes everything. How about this? The Incarnation tells us that God, that God is more body positive than you and I or our culture could ever be. Notice this. No other religion would dare say, as Paul does in Colossians 1, that the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ Jesus. The fullness of deity. Other religions might say maybe part, maybe a little bit, maybe this aspect, but the fullness, no. And yet we proclaim that in Jesus Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In coming into creation, Jesus reminds us of its inherent goodness. That creation, so good in fact, that he came to give a hope and future not only to, to all of creation, but to our physical bodies. He came to give a hope and a future to our physical bodies. From our mind to our toes, he will make every inch of it brand new. Another ancient follower of Jesus wrote insightfully when he said this, What Christ has not assumed, what Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. There is healing. If not in this life, then in the life to come, for every part of your body. There is redemption coming from your mind to your toes. Why? Because in the womb of Mary, Christ assumed totally and completely and fully all of humanity. Completely. And if Christ has assumed it, he has and he will redeem it. 
Make it brand new. The incarnation changes everything. Everything. I, I could go on for days about what it changes, and, and, and I know you, you don't want that, but how about one more? The, the incarnation changes what, what we do with our life. The incarnation changes what you and I do with our life. Later in John's Gospel, Jesus uses the very fact that he was willingly sent by the Father as the basis, as the foundation by which you and I are now to go to the nations with the message of this gospel of grace. Look at John 20, 21 with me. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Look at this. As the Father has sent me, it's his incarnation, it's his life, it's his death. It's his resurrection. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As a popular paraphrase of John 1.14 puts it, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And just as Jesus moved into the neighborhood with his message of grace and truth, indeed, he is grace and truth, you and I are now to proclaim Jesus, grace and truth, to those outside our walls, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever we find ourselves. It is so important that right now, perhaps more than ever, that you and I are finding creative ways if possible, to be a physically embodied presence in the life of those who do not know Jesus. To find a creative way to be present with this message of grace and truth. That through the gracious act of the eternal Father sending the eternal Son to undo as man what man has done, now everything changes. Friends, I wish every single one of you could, could, could listen in on the conversations happening at Alpha on Tuesday night. People are encountering Jesus in this message. This past week, I was listening to a preacher preach, as they do, from Galatians 4, where Paul, where Paul laments the fact that the Galatians had betrayed him and picking up this different doctrine, even though Paul himself had, had so uh, tirelessly labored for, for their faith, that they would believe the gospel. He had suffered much in bringing them the gospel. And, and the preacher, he goes on to say, his name's uh, Ray Orland. He said something so simple and so basic, but it was so necessary. And, and I needed to hear this this week, and maybe you need to hear this as well. Uh, Orland said this, real Christianity takes three people, one, Christ, that makes sense. Two, someone who needs Christ. And three, someone who already has Christ paying the price to help the person who needs Christ. Think about it. If you know Jesus this morning, if you know Jesus, if you know Christ, someone took time, maybe it was a youth leader, a parent, a stranger on the street, someone took time to have an awkward conversation with you, to spend nights and weekends with you, to ask you a difficult and uncomfortable question. Someone bore with you even though you were flaky and rude and ignorant and appeared not to be interested. 
Someone suffered that you might encounter Jesus. Indeed, that has always been the pattern. See, Jesus paid the price. In his incarnation, he puts on flesh and he goes to the cross so that, yes, you might have eternal life, but also so that you now would go and do the same. Here's what I mean. That you would, now born again in Christ, a new creation in Jesus, go and suffer that someone else might know Jesus. There is no other Christian life. There is no other way to follow Jesus. It is always the way of the cross. And the life that Jesus has now brought you into, I hate to break it to you. And I hate to break it to myself because I'm selfish. It's not about you. And it's not about me. It is joyfully moving to others in love, even as Jesus has moved towards us in love. I want to end by reading to you the rest of what Ray Ortland said in that sermon. He said this, All we have to do to defeat the progress of the gospel is not care enough to suffer. Whenever the gospel gets through to a new person, it costs somebody. Abraham lost his home and background. Moses lost his prestige and power. David lost his simple life in the country. Jesus lost his very lifeblood, as have many Christians through the centuries. Then he says this, And this is the question I want to leave us with. If you don't care enough to suffer for others, why, for for what purpose, do you think Christ is formed in you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess our selfishness, and I confess my own selfishness. I would like your son Jesus uh, without his cross. Father, I pray for forgiveness for the times when we as a people have sought to follow a crossless Christ. I thank you for the good news this morning that now by your Holy Spirit, you not only remind us of the assurance of forgiveness we have in your son Jesus, but you also now empower us to be sent even as you sent your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen.